Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I'm Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. And we are coming to you from the Warshed. I was about to say live from the Warshed, but this is actually probably about two weeks after this was recorded. This is not live. Not live. Um, But the Warshed is finally finished. I know I've been talking about it for weeks. I have been uh, teasing you guys, maybe with a, a picture on Instagram or something like that, but it is finally finished. We're talking insulation, drywall, electricity, carpeting, baseboards. It is... A, a little one-bedroom war room. It's nice in here. Out it's, in the yard, yeah. I mean, it's clearly a shed, but it's a war shed, so... <laughs> so I'm stoked about it. Uh, we're going to be, of course, recording in here, and uh, it, it might sound a little live today. Even as we're sitting here recording, I can hear the, the sound bouncing a little bit. We still need to put some sound-deadening stuff in the corners, so bear with us if this episode is a little, ah, you know, in your ears, but next time around, uh, it, it'll... It'll be proper and where it should be. Malark, Alark, I promise that you will notice more than anyone else will. That's that's you and Court will be like, oh my god, and the rest of them. You're what? I don't even (laughs) know what you're talking about. But yeah, it's good to see thumbs. Uh, Of course, we've been trying to to hear by the strict social distancing guidelines that everybody else is trying to do right now. So he is the first non-medical person that I have seen in months at this point. Yeah, it's been your doctor and your family. Yeah. Um. And it's the first time I've hung out with a friend other than, you know, my roommate. Right. Since March, early March, and it is late May. (laughs) Oh, my God. Let's just take a moment to reflect on that. It's a weird year, Um, man. Uh, but you know, we we're staying within the guidelines. I think it's up to groups of 10 people out in Montana now, and we're still being, we almost didn't do two. Yeah, this was, I, I've been on the fence about getting getting together at all just because we want to keep our household safe and everything, but this is so much easier to do in the same space. The flow is so much easier. You can actually look over and see both uh, sound levels and it's just, it's, yeah, this is, this is a, a preferable way to do it. We figured out how to do it otherwise, but this is better. Yeah. And there's also less delay between the two of us talking. Um, it doesn't, you don't hear it as much in the episodes, but for the editors, it drives us nuts when there's a slight lag. We did an episode of General Nerdery with three of us, mm. and one person was in Utah. Oh my gosh. And there was a definite lag, and there's a couple times where I was like, I am just on this poor girl all the time, like I'm cutting her <laughs> off. And I felt terrible until I remembered that there was so much lag that I wouldn't realize she started talking, so I'd be like, oh, I have a thing to say here. And then like, Re- or she cut me off and I cut her off and then blah, 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 blah. Just a and back and forth sort of thing. And yeah. It's a, it's a totally different, because like when you're in each other's presence, you can actually see each other's faces, read each other's body language, and, and there's not that automatic delay in, in signal. So you're like, okay, he's coming to a natural end in his sentence. I'm going to wait, and now it's my turn to make my point heard. Whereas if you're on the phone, you're like, I I think... I think it's my turn. I'm guessing. Not my turn. Oh, 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 now we're both talking. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. And it's uh, just, even yeah. with a video call, you don't notice how much a half second delay is until you actually need to sound like you know what you're talking about. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, uh, video calls, and um, there was a specific setup you had to do for Rock Band when I first started doing it, <laughs> where if you didn't jack your sound system in in a very specific way, there was a, just a little half second delay. And for everything else, that's not an issue. But when you're trying to like play rhythmically and land on a note where it's supposed to be, yeah, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. So we kind of got off tangent a little bit, but uh, uh, us, <laughs> us, we never, we never would do that. Uh, but yeah, the warshed is good, um, and I'm looking forward. Hopefully, this week, the the week that this comes out, I'm going to be posting pictures of the finished product on our Instagram and Facebook. So take a look for that and kind of see how we've been keeping busy during this quarantine time. But uh, on another note, there's all this free time now during the quarantine. Like my wife is still working, uh, we still have the income that we had previously, and we still have our vacation fund, but we didn't have. The vacation anymore. No, like no one's traveling. No right one now. should be traveling right now. Like, so instead of going to events or to tournaments or whatever, it's like, okay, what do we spend this this chunk of change on? And we decided to go with lightsabers. <laughs> and so we've got a bunch of lightsabers on the way. And like, I, I'm, I'm just looking forward to using them. They look cool. Everything's cooler with lightsabers. Like, I'm still going to do Belagarth, obviously, but like, now I'm also going to have a lightsaber, so that's going to be cool. And like, there are combat lightsabers. Like this, if you guys haven't checked it out, there's things like Ludo Sport or Lightsaber Legion, where people do full contact fighting with lightsabers. It's it's awesome, um, and and I think it's 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 honestly an improvement in some ways on Bell because one of the issues we have in Bell is that it can be really hard to see what's going on sometimes. You know, was that a hit? Wasn't that a hit? It can be hard from off field to tell what's happening between the two combatants when you've got lightsabers it makes it a lot easier belagarth is not a spectator sport no well unless it, you're unless you are belagrim if you are belagrim you're like oh i like that high cross he just pulled and it's still a lot of fun to watch but there is a definite difference between a much more performative sport and belagarth which is just two people or two groups or whatever just yeah, no, and and it is it's very different and i and i think that the lightsabers are cool because they're they're more fun to look at too. Like, I mean, I love our weapons. I love our garb and all that sort of thing, but there's just something iconic about seeing a lightsaber moving through the air that, that draws one's eye. Yeah. I've been watching star Wars my entire life. So like there, there's definitely something on that. Um, I ended up getting some too. Justifying it because you had bought some, if we're being entirely <laughs> honest here, uh, CC and I have been looking at buying them for, pretty much as long as we've been together which is going to be six years by the time this episode comes out i think right right um and thank you and uh it's just hard to justify dropping that money sometimes but we're not going on vacations and the big wedding that we had planned for is being put off for for a year so we're just doing a small like eloping thing uh which i think will be done by the time this episode comes out so yay me but because we're not having this big wedding, I have a little more funds, so I bought us lightsabers. I will not argue with that purchase. <laughs> and, and because uh, the, the the wedding should have happened by the time this one comes out, I want to be the first to say congratulations to Mr. and Mrs. Thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, shortly after I proposed... Or Mr. and Mrs. Cece. I don't, I don't know. Both. Um, shortly after I proposed, one of my, one of the titles I've earned over the years is Baron Von Thumley. Baron Von Thumley. 
And uh, I had been working on a piece of applique, so I'd been, you know, designing garb, and I left it on the chair when I went to work, and I got home and she had pinned a note to it that said, this looks really good, the future Miss Baron Von Thumbley. And I was like, well, this is my favorite thing that you've ever done. Like, That's this is... cute. That's cute. I like that. Oh, uh, well, right on. Yeah, so as our lightsabers are on the way, we're going to be having those and probably doing something with them. Um, I was, I was tr- hoping to, cause everything's getting nice right now. Like the weather's getting super cool and the, and the, uh, the everything's green, everything's blooming. And so I'm sitting here looking around being like, it's time for the 12 shot videos. Like it's going to be happening soon. And I was hoping that my lightsabers would be here in time for that. I don't know if it will. Cause like, Doing the 12 shot video with a lightsaber would be pretty cool. Oh, yeah. So, if, if nothing else, we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. I love the space. So, we can go down to one of the like four rivers close to our houses and just fight on the shores of a river or go up into the woods and just back each other with lightsabers and get some goofy videos from that. That'll be great. Yeah. We're, so we're going to have fun with that. We're going to, we're not just going to keep the lightsabers to ourselves. We're going to share the joy with you, the listeners. So, um, yeah, yeah. Look forward to, to freaking lightsabers sometime in the future. <laughs> and in the, in the theme of uh, Star Wars, one of your squires is doing something pretty cool, isn't she? Yeah. So... I have made several pieces of armor, including the one that I made for you, like the breastplate, off of patterns that I found from a group called the Mandalorian Mercenaries Costume Club. Mm. They're like the 501st, if you've heard of them. They're the people that dressed up as stormtroopers. These guys do the same thing, but as Mandos. Right, right. And I have made Belgarth armor off of them several times because it's very comfortable, maneuverable armor. And uh, my squire, Ani, and I were sitting watching The Mandalorian when it first started coming out. And she's like, God, that's cool. Like, you earned the armor over time and you're always wearing the helmet. Oh, man, it would be so much fun to make. And I was like, well, we should just do that then. And all of my squires, I have some special thing for them. Sure. Squire Yui and I are both very big fans of Star Trek, so they have been earning ranks through like their squireship or like the starfleet officer ranks. yeah and they get uh, i'll yeah. give them a new pip when they have reached a certain point and when they reach the rank of captain i'm going to knight them nice uh and in this case it's the similar thing as anya goes through they're going to earn new pieces of their armor hmm. and i don't know if it'll be like once they have the full armor set, it'll be time to knight them. But it's that seems about right. It is a sign of your progression of like they have a certain that they've earned the helmet already. They are working on a bracer. They're going to work on the other bracer after that. They get the breastplate after they've done a couple of physical challenges that they've got set up that they were going to practice for. But then global pandemic. Yeah, that's it. Kind of puts a damper on things. I had a lot of plans. I, one of my apprentices actually got to a point where I finally, because I, I set a, a bar for my apprentices. I say, you got to get to this certain point in these general um, challenges. And then I start making specialized thing for you. I've had apprentices for two years, mm-hmm. something now? like that. Two or three, three years uh, going on three, I think two or three years now. And um, only just now is one of my apprentices getting to the point where they can get some specialized uh, trials going on. And I was really looking forward for turkey feathers to get to do some cool things this season. And then there was a global pandemic. So yeah, yeah, it, it throws a damper on a lot of plans. We've talked about the great hunt on this before mm-hmm. and several, like we were just getting back into the great hunt 
And every once in a while, I'll just be like, oh my God, why haven't been, I have been doing great hunt things? I've been letting it die. We haven't had practice in two and a half months. It's okay. I feel, that. <laughs> I feel like I keep having panic attacks being like, I need to t- at least touch base with the gladiators. And oh, wait a second there. The school isn't even in session right now. Like there aren't the gladiator. I mean, I think they've been doing like a discord server or, or some sort of zoom like D and D sessions or something like That's that. That's great. That's which amazing. I'm, I'm very glad that they've been, been still doing something with the club, but. Well, and I'm glad um, they set that up for themselves too. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, these kids, they know way more about technology than we do. Like I could have tried to do something, but I would have bumbled my way through it because I know Jack all about, like I, 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 I stumbled my way through a, a podcast. Like I, <laughs> I can't do a, a multi-way video conference call. Are you kidding me? At least not yet. Not yet. I am trainable. Thank you. Any anybody who's looking for a, a job prospect, I am trainable. But yeah, so that ar- that Mando armor though, um, that your that your uh, squire is doing is really cool. That's oh a, yeah, it's very cool. Concept. We're we're both. Ma- I'm doing it too. Like we're making. I mean, I can just make it. I'm a knight, whatever. But <laughs> do what you want. But we're gonna both make the helmets, and I'm gonna push for the days that we wear the Mando helmet, so that we do it Mandalorian style, like how they do it in the live action of on that day. We are wearing the helmet. You don't take them off. We do not. Which in Star Wars is kind of back and forth on how hardcore some people are on that. But like, it's fun. It was cool. So we might as well play with it. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be fun. Uh, speaking of fun things, we're trying to keep the spirit alive in the community through different ways as well. Um, I've started something on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you guys may have seen it at this point called these player profiles, where I'm collecting information from, uh, at this point, mostly just my group of friends, people who I can harass on Facebook. But I would love to get some people I don't know uh, on there. Uh, I, I tried to hit up some some of the guys from Lorehammer. I'm waiting to hear back from them. Um, a couple of the other podcasts. Again, I'm... I, I'm a nobody at this point. I don't expect that a whole lot of people are going to talk to me. But uh, if any of you would like to be on our Facebook and Instagram or know somebody, one of your buddies that you'd like to have on there, please uh, send a thumbs or I or the show um, their information for one of these memes. You can find them on our, our Facebook and Instagram if you kind of want to see the, the format for them. And uh, they're just kind of a way to, to showcase the, the cool people who are in our community because there's a lot of people in Warhammer and Bellegarth and SCA and AmpGuard and all those other things that are, are, I don't know, they get really cool kits. They have really cool backstories, really cool histories. I mean, just the time they've been doing it, like a person who dedicates 30 years of their life to something, that's, that's pretty impressive. Like, and so I just, I, I feel like we should showcase ourselves a little bit. So, um, yeah, send that information to me. And Thumbs is, has got an initiative as well, this uh, Thrifty But Nifty. Yeah, people online have been starting to ask the questions of like, when can we start practices again? When can we, what can I do if I can't hold practices? Like, and we're lucky. We come from a really dedicated realm. We already had places to communicate. We set up a discord that some people are on. Like it was not hard because we're already friends, but for a lot of less connected realms, for a lot of less isolated realms or for newer realms, that's not quite as easy. And one thing that came up is a couple of years back, I threw a $20 garb challenge. You could only spend $20 max. Just make super cheap, see what you came up with. And we got amazing results. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Amazing results. So I decided that I wanted to do that again. And then the bad name popped in, the Thrifty But Nifty Garb Challenge. And... um, (laughs) I decided to expand it because other people were like, oh, that sounds fun. So the idea is this is Thrifty But Nifty Garb Challenge brought to you by the Art of Wargaming, General Nerdery Podcast, and thumbs up, the Art of Zach Johnson. And you have a $25 price limit. 
and you have to make one piece of garb. So it doesn't have to be like the full kit, but, you know, make a really cool tunic or amazing pants or a super incredible hood, whatever. And your realm will compete. Anyone who wants to enter in the realm and the winner of the realm will be chosen by myself and uh, Master Anij. And I do not remember who my third judge is off the top of my head, but that is okay. We will get that information out there. We will. Um, sorry, this is just come out when we're talking about this yeah it's it's still a fairly new thing so we're getting the all the details together uh and you know everyone will compete at the uh but you have to have your piece in by august 1st and the winner of each realm's challenge will get posted on all of our social medias and you will get a grab bag of goodies from the various podcasts we do here on earworm as well as a leather belt piece uh that i will tool myself very nice very and nice. if there is someone who does not have a realm or if only one person in the realm is interested we'll also have what i'm calling the nomad division which is just you know six people in stygia might do it but if there's only one person in wrath we'll put them with one the other person singles in from dirty or wherever i'm just Zeracor. naming the first realms i can think of yeah uh and then the winners of all of these realms or all of these realm challenges will be invited to the thrifty but nifty finals that'll happen sometime this fall which i don't have the specific details on that yet because i have to get through these first challenges first for sure but uh it's just looking for ways that we can keep the realm involved and not just the realm but the wider sport right have people active and doing stuff no i love it and and i think it's really another really cool way to showcase the talents of our community because uh while the fighters are part of the reason why we why we do this is to fight, especially those of us who are involved in like the the war game things, the more full contact LARPs, the the war the Warhammer 40k. The reason we do it is for the combat, but that's not to say that an amazing kit doesn't look amazing. So mm-hmm. yeah, we definitely want to show the kind of talent that uh, that people have out there. And well, and it kind of goes both ways. Of like, we get to do put your cool stuff up on your stuff will get spread on our social media. Mm-hmm. But that also means we have more stuff to put on our social media, which exactly. we did not know before going in is one of the hardest parts of running podcasting is maintaining the social media. Yeah, I'm not. I'm when I before I started this, I was not a huge presence on Facebook. I didn't have an Instagram. Uh, I, I'm not a, a social media aficionado. I use it to keep up to date on um I don't know, Warhammer for the most part. But Warhammer, like, Realm Practices, and yeah. the like 10 people I like. Yeah, yeah like, that's, that's, that's it about goes. it. But, uh, and then this started and it was like, oh, oh Lord, I need to actually have a, an Instagram presence. What, what do I put on Instagram? Uh, and so you guys have kind of seen my experimentations with you know quotes and uh, factoids and now uh, player profiles. But it would be awesome to show some cool things that you guys do. Because again, I'm, I'm only so limited. You saw the, the coolest thing I've ever painted was that chaos star that I put a picture of. That's, that's me as an artist. Um, I am not that talented, but some of y'all I know are worthy of being put on a, uh, on the online. So mm-hmm. I'd like to see it. <laughs> on the online. On the online. You're well, hip and cool. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's, uh, that's about good for, for introducing us. What do you think? I, I think it's about time to dive into some meats and some potatoes on the online. And what we got on the menu today is the idea of a coupe d'ail. I think I pronounced that right. You and France, our French listeners can correct me. I'm sure I'm They're just wincing that. at you right now. They're, they're, they're spearing their eardrums out i'm pretty sure <laughs> and uh the but uh, yeah we're talking about the idea of the coupe duel and knowledge of the country 
so I've talked about it before on this, but it is always kind of fun and interesting of the concepts that will come up in these. I now on our third book, we've heard variations of before, but it's so different from every person who's from every different author that you have. Oh yeah. I mean, obviously every, every writer, every military tactician is going to tell you that you need to know the country is going to tell you to survey the country, but each of them is going to have a different approach to it. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going to have a different perspective, which I think is a, is part of the reason that we keep looking at these things over and over again, which is why we're going to keep talking about things like logistics and camps and examining the land is because there's a lot of different ways to think about it. And there's a lot of different approaches and none of them are necessarily right or wrong. It's just good to know them all, uh, and, and use the one that's useful to you. I'm a, I'm a utilitarian first and foremost. One of the things that we tell new fighters all the time when they're like, oh, you need to stop doing this thing. And they're like, I, you have told me that a hundred times. I'm like, well, you're still doing the thing. It kind of applies here as well. In some cases, yes, you have heard this information before, but it's still important information. So you still get to learn the thing. And and we I know we've gone over this before too, but even masters need to go over the basics again. Like uh, there's a reason why I do the the twelve shots every day that I do. It's not because I'm learning anything new from it necessarily. It's because I don't want my basics to get rusty. Mm -hmm. And then anytime I see anybody doing drills, I always try to join in because it's like, oh, I haven't done this drill for a while. Oh yeah, I I forgot about this little move. Like you get like there's little little things that you forget over time that you're not even aware that you're forgetting. Or you don't even mean to purposefully forget. And then they're just gone. So going over the basics again on anything is always a good idea. Um, and especially something as vital as this, because this is where Frederick won and lost his battles, mostly won, um, <laughs> was in this concept of, I'm going to butcher it again, uh, coup d'el. It's spelled C-O-U-P-D apostrophe O-E-I-L. I did not know what this meant. I'd never heard this word before. I hadn't either. And, 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 and the word itself is kind of, it's one of those words that, that means what it is like it it's a intuitive understanding of how to use your forces in the terrain presented to you mm -hmm. so it's one of those things where you have you have used your forces so many times and you have done it in so many different terrain types and different circumstances that every that there is no new circumstance everything um feels familiar because it is you you've done it before in a in, a, in another place yeah i guess um, and so that's, again, why we're going over this. So it just becomes second nature to you. And in this particular case, the knowledge of the country that Frederick is talking about, the first thing is visit the place. And if, you, if you're going to a place that you've been a hundred times, like if you're going to Chaos Wars and it's been held at the same site for the last several years and you know your way around, then this part has already been done for yeah, you. Yeah, if I'm going to Bonner Park... Yeah, I've been there. Which I, I've been going to that same. I've been going to the same part of that park since I was 15 years old to play this game. It's been a minute. But if I'm going to, let's say, Ockfest, which I have never been to before, one of the first things I'm going to do, like as soon as I have my tent set up, sometimes before that, I'm going to go check out the field. And one of the things that he's even talking about right now is arrive early. Like it's not a bad idea to arrive near the site, maybe a week if you can afford to, or a, ha or a few days ahead of time, and then maybe go to the park and walk the ground and kind of get a feel for it before anybody's even there. Mm. It's one of the things he's talking about here, but also what you're saying, which is, you know, you set up your, and that first night, are you planning on doing any big field fighting? Maybe I'll like do some evening spars or something. Usually my first day, if we're talking like a week long event. 
uh, I putz around. I go say hi to all the people I haven't seen. I get some spars in, but I'm not diving, for the most part, I am not diving into the uh, giant field fight taking the whole wall kind of situation. So then what is your purpose for going and visiting the field? Uh, knowing what is happening, so when I am at that, like, take the castle moment, knowing what to expect. Uh, for example, to mention the field that we go to every week at Bonner again, there is one spot where there's a slight dip. Mm-hmm. Right just, near where just, the, there's like an irrigation system. And it's only like a foot wide by a foot wide kind of thing. It's not big. And it, it's not like a hole. It's just a dip. Like a four inch dip. And it has injured more people than anything else because you'll be rocking, running, whatever. And suddenly the ground shifts just a little bit and a fall. Countless ankles and knees have been sacrificed by oh, a gap. I've done it. You've done it. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I think everybody who's who's fought in that park for any length of time has probably done it. Um, so I like to know, I mean, I, you're not going to catch every little dip like that, but I like to know about the big things to be aware of. Or if it's a field with trees or any kind of uh, terrain stuff like, oh, there's a gap right there. I need to remember that there is that small gap that like one or two people can sneak through and not just the big ones on the sides or whatever. Like Scouting the field can keep you from being surprised when there's a castle battle the next day. You may not have been aware that there was a castle, but if you visit the field the night before and you see a conspicuous pile of hay bales, that might point to the... Someone's going to bring a castle. Somebody's going to have a fortification of some kind. Um, and you also mentioned that other people might be fighting. Great time to scope out the other fighters, to kind of see the level that's being brought, to see the energy. Because every event, even if you've got the same people going to every event... Every event is going to be different because people are coming at it from different points in their life. Either they're super energized from work or super down from work. Either their relationship is giving them a reason to want to be there or it's something that's distracting them. All these tiny little factors that are in people's heads are going to affect the way the field looks. And you can get an idea of that by scoping it on that first night. Well, and just the the feeling of the event is very different depending on the event as well. Sure. To do two events that are actually pretty close to each other location-wise... Uh, Western Wars is known as kind of a party event. Mm-hmm. The It is not very organized. The fighting is always haphazard. excellent, but it is, yes, yeah. it is very haphazard. There's not like, here's the times, here's the tourneys, here's this. It's just go play and people play uh, as opposed to, you know, T-Wald, which is just one state over. That is a small field. It is dedicated to we are going to get into the grind right people go to western wars to hang out and party with their friends people go to t-wall to fight right so yeah the purpose of an event might be different based Mm -hmm. on not only who's running it but the kind of people who attend and if i know that you know i've been to both of those events multiple times that's one thing but if i go to again i'm going to use Ockfest because it's the only event i can think of or beltane which i've never been to if I go check out that field and watch some of that, I'll have a better idea of what to expect than I would otherwise. Absolutely. And that's that's even a, even more key. Uh, you know, I might be going to an event here in the West, and that might be new to me, but when I was going in the East, even more so, you know, like there's, there's even more of a difference there between fight styles and field setup and that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah, this visit the place. Is the idea. You try to do it beforehand. If you haven't if you haven't been to a site, it's a good idea to visit the site maybe a day or two beforehand uh, just to kind of know where things are at. But also, maybe the night of, go and check out the main fighting field. Make sure that you know about any gopher holes or tall grass or trees or fortifications or, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of fighting. There's a lot of, a lot of different reasons to reconnoiter. 
Um, and we, we super understand if, like, I can't go to Tennessee two days ahead. Right. But, right. you know... We, this is an ideal thing. Yeah. If it's in Frenchtown, which is five miles from here, yeah, I can go check out that site a couple days ahead. And the nice thing is, if you're a part of a larger realm or a unit... It doesn't ha- like not every single person has to see the site. If there's a if there's a person that everybody trusts to go and do the recon for you, uh, that's that's best case scenario mm-hmm. because then they can tell everybody else. And not everybody has to go because, like you say, everybody getting to Tennessee a few days beforehand that may or may not work for other people's schedules. But there, there might be one person in your unit that can get there a little early and maybe go check out the field, or maybe somebody who lives closer than other people do. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are all good things. And the, and the second part of this, the same idea of visiting the place is choosing your camp, like potentially plural, because there's always, when, when a unit has been going to a particular a site a lot, um, they, they, they will kind of develop a favorite, typically a favorite yeah. campsite. Uh, but there's no guarantee you're going to get it unless it's a place like Eastwind where you, like, if you go to a campsite many times, many times, many times, you actually kind of get, you get the site and can improve it and it's yours for as long as you continue coming. Um, not a whole lot of camp places are able to do that. Uh, so it's a good idea to show up and scope out one or two campsites that are going to work for your group. Cause if you have a larger group, you're going to need a larger, more spread out area to get everybody together. If you want something more secluded, there's only going to be a few places that really suit those needs. And so choosing your camps, being able to, to get there and see that is really important, but not just for this. Again, we're going to take this metaphor and take it onto the field when, when you're scoping the actual field, like thumb suggested. Uh, the other part of this is being like, okay, where do I want to set up? If my unit or my realm is getting on here, where's a good spot to be? Where situ? Where what what uh, what starting area basically? What's some good cover? Yeah, do yeah. I want to be standing right in the center, which is not necessarily a bad idea, but you are aware that you're putting yourself in the hot spot, right? Or do I want to stand in the corner, but you know, aware that you have now cut off two locations of escape? Uh, a whole sorts of variety. And, and it depends on your group, obviously. So, so again, being able to get there and see these things um, kind of guarantees your ability to make the best decisions and put yourself in an advantageous position. Same thing applies for 40K. If you're showing up to a tournament and it's your first time at this tournament, it's a good idea to go down and walk the tables even before your first round to get an idea of what kind of terrain they're using. What's the spread on that terrain? Are the tables super different? Is that going to make a difference depending on where you're at? And then in the same vein, you can kind of be like, all right, well, if I start on this side, this grouping of buildings situates my needs really well or would would, uh, choke me up so I don't want to be anywhere near them. You can kind of start plotting out in your mind the um, theoreticals of, mm-hmm. of the situation. I know I've done this at the local tournaments I've come here to. I've walked the tables before we got started and been like, okay, what does everything look like? What's the spread? What are my possibilities for starting position? And you can do the same thing with Bell. Uh, and, and, and this is, again, you want to do it with the actual campsite and you probably want to do it with your the, the field and or... Um, ugh. Where you sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've also talked about this. Our, all our examples here have been defensive, but this is an offensive thing as well. Right. Where, you know, you're looking at like, where can I escape? But also what is going to give me a good jump? When I talked about be aware of this place, people can get through. Maybe you're the person that's getting through. Right. 
Right. And so this is this is an important thing because uh, like like Thumbs was saying, and in our last episode, we were talking about these different types of camps. Obviously, how you're going to be setting up depends on your relationship to the enemy, how close you are to them, what sort of obstacles are going to be able to separate you. This is going to play a huge call. So there's only so much you can plan beforehand. But as you can tell, I'm an overthinker and it's it's good to go through three theoreticals because it sets you up for for any conceivable situation, which is nice. And the same idea of choosing camps is the idea of examining roads. Now, again, if if you've been to Western Wars mm-hmm. um, every, ever since it started, and you know those roads by heart, you could drive them with your eyes closed, it's less important that you go and scout this, obviously, because you, you're going to know the roads. But for me, the first time I went to Western Wars, um, I'm really glad that we got there early <laughs> because those roads would have been very hard to navigate um, later in the day or if I was in a rush. If you were in an unfamiliar environment and, you know, going from Montana to Oregon is not just places I don't know, like I don't know these roads, but I mean, the entire nature has changed. We're Alpine Desert. They're Rainforest? Rainforest, yeah. yeah, not like tropical rain, but rainforest still. It gets dark, and it is 100% different mm-hmm. than what I am used to in the dark. This is true on the roads, and this was true trying to navigate around camps. Right, right. Yeah, they, get, they actually get a pitch dark there. We have very sparse tree cover, or we have a lot of trees, but they're not very thick. And we don't have a whole lot of underbrush. Right. I found out the hard way. They do. A lot. And a lot of it has <laughs> spines. That's the other thing. Like they get a lot of pokey things. It was the same thing in, in And Tennessee. it's all wet. Yeah. Always. Doesn't even matter if it's raining. It's still wet. Uh, so yeah, roads. Uh, even arriving before dark is important. The other thing is making sure that your car is situated for the roads. A lot of events that you're going to go to, you're going to be able to get to right off of a freeway or right off of a highway pretty easy. You're not going to need to go off-roading. But it's good to know beforehand so you're not like... Um, if there's a cruddy dirt road, that's going to be way different than if it's just down a driveway. And you want to know. And you, but before you get there, before you bottom out your Prius on, on a really bumpy dirt road, you want to make sure that you've got the vehicle to get to where you're trying to get to. Also, event coordinators, make sure that you put up as many big signs as you can yes. telling people where it is. Because you know where it is, as we've covered exhaustively now, they do not. Nope. Um, and especially for the people, there's always someone that arrives at midnight because they had to work that day or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that one sign might look fine in the day, but you can drive right past it at night. And I know this because I have done this so many times. Yep. <laughs> you want as many signs, like the, the best ones I've ever been to had like Western Wars. I don't remember what event it is. I'm just going to say Western Wars. Western Wars, two miles. Western Wars, next left. Western Wars on this and like big, big signs. Sorry, I hit the wall there. This is a uh, new space. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we're adjusting. The, 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 you might think it's obvious because you know where it is. The more obvious you make it, just assume everyone's really dumb and half and blind. blind. Yeah. Because they probably are by like 1130 or three in the morning because there's, I don't know why. Someone always arrives at three in the morning. Well, again, work where I get these, these things that we're suggesting to you are obviously if you can, if, if you're barely making this event, your boss told you that you had to work up until the wire and you're going to have to drive through the night in order to make your favorite event. Obviously your rules are going to be a little bit differently and I'm praying for you, but in an ideal world, if you're able to leave at such a time that you can 
arrive before dark. That's advisable. It's is what we're saying. so much better. It's so much better. Yeah. Also, setting up a tent in the dark, it's not that fun. It's really not. It's really not. I mean, even if people have flashlights, there's just, yeah, you, there's so many other things you'd rather be doing at that time. Mostly sleeping, uh, in my case, or, or going and visiting your friends or whatever the case may be. Even easy tents to set up, then you're like, oh man, like all the stuff in the tent, you just kind of wake up in the pile and like, it, you're, it's never getting better. Once it reaches the pile stage, your tent is not going to improve. You got to keep that organization from day one. Cause yeah, I, I noticed the same thing, especially on the trail. Cause you're out there for nine days. And if you let your tent get out of control, good luck packing that up when you got to get out of there, man. Like mm-hmm. there's no way. So the last thing on this idea of knowledge of the country that we want to talk about is speaking to the locals. Um, and, and, and for no bigger reason than weather. Um, one of the things that we like to talk about is that in Montana, we, we like to think we know what rain is, but we really don't. Um, our rain is like for most of the rest of you who are listening from where I've, at least I've seen in the world to you, our rain would seem like the sky was spitting while it had dry mouth. (laughs) <laughs> for about two seconds that is a very vivid description but it's not wrong it's not wrong uh we got a lot more wind than we do rain typically like occasionally we'll get a nasty squall but they're super super rare mostly in montana again like thumb said we're an alpine desert uh we just don't get that much rain and so when we were going someplace and somebody says prepare for rain our definition of prepare for rain might be slightly different i, I think you had a story to tell on this Yeah, um, I know I've mentioned Western Wars about 14 times today. And I think because I knew I was going to tell this story, it's just the event in my mind. People are like, it is wet at Western Wars. It's wetter wars. Be aware. It's Oregon. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what to do for rain. So I did what you do for rain in Montana, which is you wear about four or five layers. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to rain like hell for 20 seconds. Maybe. 10 minutes, yeah. like not long. And then you take off that top layer or two and you let it dry off and then you go about your stuff. That's not how rain works in Oregon. It never rained hard once, but it was moist. Always wet. For four days straight. <laughs> and at several points, it wasn't even raining. There was just so much water in the air. And people who were prepped for that kind of weather that had like more water resistant fabric, as opposed to the like five layers of linen that I was wearing, mm-hmm. were like, yeah, this is fine. Why? What's wrong with you? And I'm just like, ah, ah, just like losing my mind. And like, we told you it was wet. Like, I, I thought I was ready for wet. I didn't understand. So you need to understand, is it like, oh, it's going to be wet? briefly just wear a couple layers and be fine or is it going to be wet constantly wear something that's a little more water repellent i have a story along? i have a story on this too i uh my very first event i went to in tennessee because i'd gone to basic training in the south i thought i knew all there was to do i i brought extra socks right i brought mm-hmm. extra underwear made sure i had extra things of garb just in case those got wet they were all taken care of squared away what I didn't count on was my shoes getting soaked because mm. like you said, it's in, over at that point in Montana. If something gets wet, like your shoes, you just take them off for a couple hours, leave them in the sun or just leave them in the air and they'll be dry again. Um, my shoes, after I got them wet that first night at, at, uh, I think it was, it was either, it was either Beltane or Equitane or, or uh, Beltane or Equinox, um, Equitane, <laughs> it's like Aquitaine. They didn't get dry again. 
Like they didn't dry off for like several days after I got back to my air conditioned house and had them inside. I caught my very first foot fungus from this, this camping trip in Tennessee because I could not get my feet dry to save my life. So, so my, my expectation, I, nobody else there, by the way, was wearing basketball sneakers. Yeah, Uh, because they were all ready for it. They were all ready for it. They were like, I'm not going to wear something that's super absorbent. I'm going to wear something that has leather on the outside, like hiking boots or military boots, that is going to keep the water out. I was like, I'll be fine. And Well, in Montana, basketball shoes are some of the things I recommend most for fighting in, because they have great grip, you can move really well on them, but we also don't have to worry about wet the extremes in the same way yeah yeah um in a similar thing of you mentioned trail crew so my trail crew story we went on a two almost two week trail crew trip and it rained for 10 days straight and like every night we the the way that we had the setup is we because i mean we're 10 miles from the nearest road here right yeah this is backpacking yep uh and like all seven of us huddled around the fire and like socks all everyone had a pair of socks hanging with the fire and everyone would wear two pairs of socks Mm -hmm. and you would have the outside layer and the inside layer and then at night you would dry off the outside layer over the fire as much as you could and then when you went to bed you would take off the inside layer put on Sorry. Punching things. Yes, I'm just punching things. Uh, Take off the outside layer, put on the inside layer that are now warm and almost dry. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, what was the inside layer would be the outside. So you were just like swapping back and forth because we did not have time that it would take to dry all these socks. And they just got wet so fast. Now, let me ask you a question. Was this over the mountain range in Idaho. It was in Idaho, where yes. Where they get considerably more rain <laughs> than we do here, yeah. So moral of the story here, folks, we, I think we've, we've beaten this particular point to death, but the moral of the story here is if we had talked to locals, if we had had people in the area that we could ask about weather patterns and what, what was proper to wear. For instance, if I had bothered to ask any of the Tennesseans, should I only bring one pair of basketball shoes to an outdoor Tennessee event? I think unilater- unilaterally they would have said, no, at least What's bring two. At least bring yeah. another pair of shoes, but like... Yeah, they would have. They would have told me that was dumb if I had bothered to ask them. So, and there is other stuff to worry about other than rain. You know, it could be sun, it could be wind, it could be whatever. Rain is just the one that throws us most for the loop as alpine desert. People. Yeah, we're from the desert, so anytime there's water coming from the sky in any quantity, it just baffles us completely. <laughs> I, I, I was about to tell another story on that, but again, beaten horse. There's, there's going to be other chances to tell water stories. Moving on. Um, so, so with this information. This information that we've pieced together of the knowledge of the country by visiting the place, you know, choosing your camp wisely, examining roads and speaking to your locals, you start to get an idea of what this country is. And at this point, you can start to understand what plans the enemy might make. You can understand where they might march. Um, for instance, uh, there's a, there's a, a place, a, a, um, an event that we go to here, Thabral, mm-hmm. uh, that has a fairly wooded area. And didn't you, you were, you were I've mentioned it here several times. It's it's my all time favorite field to go play in. So because he's, because Thumbs has been to Thalbrawl several times and noticed this particular area on the field where it's hardly ever guarded because it's kind of off to the side and it's kind of this, it's the beginning of a network through the underbrush and trees, but hardly everybody, anybody regards there, which means like you were saying, there's almost always a breach from Mm -hmm. that area. And so that has taught you to be mindful of kind of side areas that might be breachful because you've seen that 
Um, so and if you just put one person right there, it doesn't even have to be that good. It's a small enough area that one person can generally hold off almost anything. Just make it that it's... At least holler for help. Yeah, it is going to take long enough to make that breach that it's not really worth it. But you have to have that one person there. So in this way, if I brought you east with me one time and we went to, let's say, Ragnarok, and we went to the heavily forested area and went to some of those forest battles, you might be more likely to notice a place an enemy might march because you've made that observation in a wooded area Mm -hmm. in this area. Um, and so you can do it again. This is part of the reason you want to visit the field before you start fighting, fighting there to be like, okay, where might people maneuver? Where might be good places for them? Where, where are they going to come through or natural choke points? Now, if you're dealing with a wide open field, like a, a soccer field or something like that, this one is going to be less important because they can march anywhere. <laughs> this be at that point, it becomes where does everybody else set up? And, and in which case, where can they maneuver safely? And so that might be done, you know, post uh, like setting up, but this is, you know, if, if there is a, a varied field, you want to get there and see it first. You've told a story before about, um, a water crossing at some event that people were like, Oh, we can get across this part of the Creek right here or right. whatever it was. And it ended up, they realized when it was just too late to matter anymore, that it was way deeper than they thought it was. Cause apparently the theme of this episode is wet. We, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. It was just raining. Just earlier, lean so. into this guys. Um, <laughs> If they had checked beforehand, they would have known that maybe that's not the way to go. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and, and I'm assuming those guys weren't locals. And if they were locals, I... Maybe they just like going through tepid like, water. Maybe uh, I read the situation wrong. Maybe I thought it was a mistake and maybe they were just cooling off midday. I don't know. There, there is an argument for that, too. I don't know. I didn't ask them. I was busy fighting. Um <laughs> And so in the same idea, you can, you can understand what camps they might occupy. And in this particular case, camps would be strong areas. And this is the same thing goes for 40K. If you know your boards, if you know the various armies, you're going to be able to know where people are maneuvering, where they can march, and where they, the, what camps they might occupy or what strong areas. You know, if there's a natural grouping of buildings or trees or craters or, or whatever gives cover on the battlefield, that's a strong area that you, you want to be mindful of. If you're not occupying it, there's a very good chance somebody else might. Or even if you are, they might try to occupy it, take it from you. Again, theoreticals. We're, all, we're thinking in theoreticals here. And with this bit of information, where the enemy can march, where the enemy can maneuver, basically, and what camps they might occupy, this comes to the most important part of this information, which is where's a good ambush spot? Because nothing uh, brings your numbers to bear with a good advantage like an ambush, mm-hmm. catching somebody unawares. Yeah, and so like you were saying, with we're going to use this thaw brawl uh, gap as an example, because people come through there so often, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a good spot to potentially set up? I've done it before. Yeah. I've, I've just, there's a little like curve behind, I stood right behind it, and they started to come through, and I was like, ah! And it worked great. <laughs> just, just gacking them from behind. Yeah, yeah, and especially when I started spearing, like next time I go to thaw brawl, and you know, the theoretical, I go to events someday kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to hang out behind one of those trees and just with my spear and they will not be ready for me. Well, well they might be now. If if you're, I was going to say, if you're going to Thaw Brawl in the future, y'all, you just heard Thumbs a secret plan. So, um, yeah. Plot for a year or two in the future. <laughs> yeah. If, if anybody remembers, I know, again, for me, this time seems like it's compressing over this, this bizarre 
everything's different. The last three months have been about three years long and three minutes long, all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that on a soul level. But I think uh, I think we, we this is kind of what we're talking about in the knowledge of country, right? You're not just you're not just looking at it. You're also thinking about it. You're trying to imagine where people are going to go and where these where these points are going to be. And this this comes uh, to a head. The reason we're talking about this is our next section is on pursuing the essential. But do you have anything else to add on this I think subject? We're good on that front. Well, then, y'all, let's uh, let's move on to talking about what you need to do to pursue the essential. this knowledge of country, we have to be able to do something with it. And the idea is then to pursue the essential. And you can do this in a number of ways. Um, Frederick recommends very first off the idea of going after the biggest target. You can see this very much in the Seven Years War and how he chooses which army to maneuver against. And he doesn't bother with the recon units or the small skirmish detachments. He goes right after the meat and potatoes because that's the important point. He says, if you can you break the back, basically, of the bat. Mm-hmm. The bat cannot fight anymore. <laughs> Bane here? When you, when you see our new, uh, our, our new season pick that we're going to be putting up, you're going to understand why I made that reference. <laughs> Thumbs' his mask is fantastic. I need a sweet Bane helmet. It's uh, sweet. <laughs> and so uh, the first part of this is making sure that you're using the terrain to its full potential. And, and to do this, you have to practice. Again, when Frederick was talking about this, he, was, he had his little force that he practiced the bejesus out of. They drilled everywhere, all the time, in every circumstance. So when he arrived on any battlefield, he knew exactly how to use them. That's the idea that we're talking about here. And so if you're practicing in Bell, it's easy, enough, or any of the other uh, combat sports, we should probably include Ludo Sports and uh, uh, Saber Ranger, SCA, anything where you fight you another person, especially in larger field things. Um, where, where it's going to make a difference, practice it, you know, get your group together and practice fighting on the wall, practice fighting behind the wall, practice fighting with your back to the edge, practice fighting out in the open and make sure that you know what the plan is in all of those circumstances. And it doesn't even have to be a verbal plan. Most of the time when I've been in physical war gaming, we don't sit there. Like if, if thumbs and turkey feathers and myself found ourselves on the same part of the same team. We wouldn't sit there necessarily and put our heads together and do a football huddle and say, okay, we're going to go corner left, uh, uh, hike in, and then a, uh, uh, a long to the, to the, it's not, it's not, this isn't, this, it's usually not a formal thing. It's because I've worked with Thumbs so many times that I know what he's going to do. I've worked with TF so many times that I know what he's going to do. So we just work as a fluid unit, I guess, is, is the idea. Before Turkey joined the EBF, he and I used to do two-man tourneys all the time together you rocked him um and i just remember one time where we got up and i started to like give off the like here's what we're gonna do and he just looks at me and goes i know man (laughs) (laughs) it's all in here and i was like right yes we we don't actually have to talk about this anymore um and so it's good to get to that point with mm -hmm. your team because again we're not the nice thing about bell is normally our teams you're not talking about a hundred a thousand five thousand you know you you know fifty thousand people who don't necessarily know each other. You're talking about small groups who are getting together at strengths of like 10 or 15. And if you are all very intimately familiar with the way the other ones move, it really helps. This is, this is the practice that he's talking about. Remember this concept of butchering it again, Kudel, 
um, is this intuitive interpretation of knowing just knowing what to do on the battlefield with your troops. And and again, this is we just need we can't stress it enough. Practice, practice, practice. Practice your sword forms. Practice moving as a group. I mean, one of the things we're planning on doing is Stygia. Hopefully, if they're interested in it, when everything opens back up again, is starting like a group movement class mm -hmm. um, and, and 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 trying to help teach people who are who don't necessarily know how where to be in the line and how to move. In some ways, practicing moving together and more importantly, practicing communicating moving together is more important than learning how to fight together because you know how to fight and that person knows how to fight. But learning how to move in unison is wicked hard. Yeah. Um, and the it people always want to start it off with like we're gonna go far left right now yeah blah 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 like somehow they make go left six sentences long right right and it's long and it's confusing and by the time that that sentence is done you need to probably not be going left anymore you need to be going somewhere else because it changed but hard left you can yell that that's two syllables mm -hmm. you can yell that real quick when you have these code words you don't need the plan that's going to fall apart really quickly uh we had when we were dgma together we had a couple different ones but the one that still sticks with me was helter skelter <laughs> which was <laughs> everything's going wrong just punch out you do as much damage as you possibly do as can. much damage as you can if you can't escape escape regather somewhere else yep yep basically just an explode the formation formation and helter skelter one just sounded cool and was fun. And it was way easier to know what to do there than, oh man, everything's going wrong. Just get out. What? And we knew real fast what it meant. Mm -hmm. The other people didn't necessarily know what it meant. Because the other thing is when you're actually out there on the battlefield and it's, it's probably far more intense when you're dealing with metal weapons on metal armor. But when you're on the, the Belagarth field, you're not just trying to yell orders over a, a silent battlefield you've got a bunch of other people screaming dead screaming what they've got limbed screaming green screaming red you've got the the constant thumping of the, thug, of the, thug, things thug. In the there's always like, someone whacking their shield for no reason yep, there's that's uh, me yep i like to whack my shield for no reason <laughs> to add to that din because there's something to it but in that short concise very staccato senses sentences are are ideal and and like thumb said you could get, get the familiarity for this uh, for the short battle plans comes from this this intense practice together mm -hmm. and in doing so there's two different things you want to practice doing against the enemy in particular <clears throat> the first thing is what do you do your particular unit what do you do if you encounter them on the move if they're moving from camp to camp or place to place on the on the field what what do you do oh i want to go back to that practice thing for just one more thing actually um there was a, a point that uh, plague marines i've been playing a lot of death guard Mm -hmm. And one of the things that absolutely vexes me about watching Death Guard players in battle reports is that a lot of them will try to move the, the full length with their Plague Marines and end up getting them out of cover instead of like just taking a, a one or two inch sacrifice to their move. To I was going to say, and a lot of times just barely out of cover. Right. Why, but I don't understand why you would do that. Plague Marines in particular, you've got something that's a T5 and you're saving on a two up when they're in cover. That's better than most Terminators. At that point, that that's fantastic, and they're doing so while getting their their uh, inexorable advance and being able to uh, rapid fire at their eighteen inches. 
that's outstanding. And I don't understand why more people don't do that. And, and I think it's because they don't practice. I, I honestly didn't know to keep my Plague Marines in cover all the time until I was playing with my Plague Marines fairly frequently and noticed that they performed extremely well while in cover, like ridiculously well in cover. Most things perform better in cover, but Plague Marines like really performed better. And so... Well, and they're having the thought of like, I need to get to the enemy as quickly as possible. Well, because Death Guard's slow, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to make the most of your movement and that sort of thing. And so you're you're focused on this one aspect of combat, which is maneuvering as far forward as possible while sacrificing the best position. And so this is something to think about when you're practicing. And these are little nuances to your army that you're not necessarily going to catch unless you're practicing all the time. And so now, with that in mind, this idea of what you do when you encounter an enemy on the move, when they're moving from camp to camp or position on the field or on the, or on the, um, board. the table, the board, thank you. Um, well, it depends on who you are as an army. If you're a super steadfast, solid army, then you're going to want to stop their motion, right? You're going to want to set up something that's in their way. They're going to have to smack into your shield wall and you're going to get the most out of your shields and your pole arms and whatever else you got for your good Mm -hmm. shield unit or your good line unit. If you're a unit that enjoys more um, all over the place tactics, I suppose, you're going to want to make sure to intercept them in a place where they can't bring all their forces to bear and you're going to hit them in multiple areas where you can be numerically superior locally. Yeah, where they're forced to be stuck together if they like to be like spread out. Right, right. And so there's a lot of different things that you want to be thinking. And and this is, again, a practice thing. This is a matter of for your particular unit, your particular realm, you guys are going to move differently and, and have a certain way that can be maximized in its own way. So as I get on to this practice thing, just practice, practice, practice together. And as we said with Wargaming, the nice thing is you don't actually die. Right. So practice can just be, what did I do that game that worked well? What did I do? Or, you know, going to practice on the field at Bonner Park instead of just going to Chaos Wars and Western Wars. And the more you do stuff, whether it's sitting there playing mind games with yourself or actually going out to the park, all of that is practice. So do all of it. And and Thumbs also brings up another good point, as if you're exclusively a physical wargamer, you would benefit massively from doing a little bit of the mental wargaming. And if you're a mental wargamer or intellectual wargamer, you would also benefit from doing the physical. Because when you're usually doing um, like the intellectual wargaming, which is like Warhammer 40k, War Machine, Hordes, that sort of thing, you've got a bird's eye view of this massive battlefield where you're commanding multiple, sol- like large, large units of soldiers. Mm-hmm. And so you get this, you get this very wide perspective, but it can be hard to know what it's like down on the ground. And so I think that, that a person who war games from that perspective could benefit from doing something like Belagarth, where you have a, a first person uh, view of the battlefield and where you're, where you are one person in a line trying to maneuver and trying to deal with the realities of being on that field. You can understand a bit more about how to use that and, 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 and work in those situations. And the same goes the other way around. If you play Belagarth, it would really behoove you to be able to see that bird's eye view and be able to see what your motion does in the wider scope of things. Well, and just from an enjoyment level, like just from a flavor context, it can add a whole lot too. Sure. I remember the first time that I was in a line, mar- like my first event, I was marching with the Western Urukai, and I don't remember who we fought because I barely knew who I was, I, I was in. And as soon as the two lines hit each other, I realized that I did not know who anybody was. 
And oh boy. I have never, ex- and I mean, I immediately, like next round, found someone I knew and was like, okay, I'm going to hit who they hit until I kind of figured out what was going on. But I have never understood that level of chaos and like confusion of an actual fight better than that one moment. Mm-hmm. Certainly uniforms make a lot of sense, yeah. don't they? Yeah. Just knowing who is who is, is a big deal. Um, so yeah. And, and so again, when you're encountering people on the move, what you do is going to be, uh, is going to be special to who you are and what your group does or, or in the, in something like 40 K it's going to depend on what your group does. For instance, I'm not going to try to chase anybody with my death guard. I'm going to try to let you run into me mm-hmm. every time. So I'm going to try to position myself in such a way you have to go through me because let's face it with the exception of my bloat drones, nothing but in the death guard's going to catch you unless you're playing I'm trying to think of something slower than Death Guard, and I'm struggling. <laughs> There's not uh, Necrons. I was going to say, maybe. I actually knew that one. Yeah, we could maybe even a foot race, uh, have a have a decent foot race with the Necrons, but otherwise, yeah. Um, Death Guard are natural sprinters. A, a very, a very uh, <laughs> dangerous over short distances. <laughs> so the other, th- so if we're already talking about what do you do when you encounter an enemy on the move. The other thought is, what do you do when you encounter an enemy in position? So you've got an enemy now who is set up and ready for you. You've got an entrenched Tau who have, you know, some barriers in front of them and are waiting for you to come across an open field. Or, you know, you've, you've got uh, the BOF and they are uh, stacked up in a fort. So at this point, what do you do uh, when, they, when they're in position? And again, this depends not only on you and what you're capable of, but who your opponent is, Mm -hmm. how good their position is. What are they relying on? Do they have walls? Do they have ditches? Are they in ruins? Are they using the the land's natural features? Um, Are they not doing any of that? Are they just relying on their own strength? Like what, what do they look like? And then what do you look like? Do you have siege engines? Do you have pole arms? Do you have arrows? Do you have, uh, uh, assassins ninjas i like i don't know like do you have a lehman rust tank and are you going against boys or admec exactly <laughs> so and again these are all theoreticals these are thoughts that you need to be having and it's what makes it very difficult to play seven armies like when i first started playing 40k i was like i want to have all the flavor i can so i'm going to play seven armies and, and while in some ways it's very good it lets me see the game from a lot of perspectives it also is preventing me from really 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 focusing on one over the others because like when I start to struggle with admec, I can be like, well, I just want to do orcs or something like that. One thing that I talk about a lot in Belagarth is if you want to learn how to beat something, use the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I was getting just wrecked by spears and then I started using spear a lot. And now it's the main thing I use, but that, not, that part's not the point. Or like I was having a lot of trouble with reds. I was actually kind of scared of reds. Sure. And I, you know, before the pandemic hit, I was starting to red fight a lot. I actually am building a glaive as soon as I get the, like, as soon as it's nice on a day that I have time. I've got a good forged foam red coming in soon. Um, and so I've been able to learn how to do all of these things and I get bits of those things. But it means I'm not specialized in any of it. Right. If I had just put my time into red, if, uh, you know. Red Squad from out west, Ace and Zale and Cord and them, they're really good with reds because they, they use yeah. reds constantly. Mm-hmm. I am not that. Right. I have two or three styles that I'm pretty good at and I can stumble through most anything. Right. Advantage, disadvantage. 
For true. And, and it doesn't mean that you can't swing one way or the other. Like, for instance, I'm considering, like, really focusing on one army for this next year. Like, just whenever I'm able to start playing people again, just being like, all right, I'm going to pick Admech, for instance. And that's what I'm playing for the next season, just to really sink my teeth into them and, and be able to see that perspective. It's kind of like there was one year where I had to take a season off from regular fighting and just fight single blue, even on when everybody else was doing style of choice, because I busted my wrist. Oh, right. And you had to fight offhand, too. I had to fight so you had offhand to... single blue for an entire season. And that I didn't actually break my wrist. I sprained it. But every time it started to get better, I would try to fight with it. And, and make it bad again. Sprain it again. Yeah. So um, I ended up going offhand single blue, which is offhand uh, small sword, like an offhand uh, single sword for the whole season. And what that did was make me much better at using two swords at the same time, because up until I had done this, my brain registered my normal sword hand as being sword, and then the other sword as being shield. And yeah, even if it was a sword, you're still blocky with that one. Like, And that, that's not the point of having two weapons. If you've got two weapons, you need to be striking with two mm -hmm. weapons. That's the whole point of, of sacrificing a little bit of defense for that extra offense. And so what, what this enabled me to do was actually take that specific focus that I had done and apply it to a broader concept. So this goes back and forth. I'm not recommending that you, you only focus on things. I'm not recommending that you only broaden your mind and never focus on things. Do what keeps you from plateauing. If you're plateauing as a fighter or as a war gamer, mix it up. If you've been doing the same thing for a long time, get a new army, get a new style. Or if you've been switching a lot and you're starting to burn out on that and lose all of everything you're learning, focus up a little bit. And it really is important that as much as I do recommend changing stuff up, that you give yourself enough time that you get some of the basics. Oh, yeah. We had a fighter that was decided they were going to learn how to do every style. And, you know, that's a good thing. To, that is literally what I have been arguing that you should do. Sure, sure. But they were determined that they were going to do, I think they determined there were seven styles. They were going to do all seven styles every practice. Oh, my God. And one, it looked exhausting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Two, it meant, you know, it's a th three-hour practice. If it's a like, longer practice, I guess. like, And you're fighting the whole time. That's uh, 180 minutes. You don't have that much time. And that's 180 minutes. There's no way that you're fighting all that whole three hours. You got to drink water. You got to get a breather. You're only getting 10, 15 minutes each style. That is not giving you... That's giving enough warm-up time right. to start to play with the style. Not enough to learn everything. So even if you're trying to rotate in a practice, do two styles. There's, maybe three styles. There's a like, moderation to it for sure. Yeah. Uh, so So... Again, with, with being able to practice in specific and also practice in the general, you too can understand how to use your unit or your army uh, to, to uh, fight an enemy when they're on the move and when they're in position. That's kind of what we're, we're talking about with all of this is just making sure that you've got the tools to do both, to, to hit them and know what you're going to do when you're hitting them in both circumstances. Now we're going to shift a little bit to battlefield roles. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about infantry and cavalry. Now for 40k, this is easy because infantry are your foot sloggers. You're, you're, they're actually counted as infantry. Um, whereas your cavalry are anything that is mounted, moves fast, your planes, your large, fast moving demons, like that sort of thing would be cav. Within something like Belagarth or Amgard or SCA, your infantry are going to be your heavily armored Shieldmen typically, also pole arms fall into this category, um, who aren't necessarily into 
very fast, expansive maneuvers, and your cab are going to be your fast movers. You know, you're, you're, they're not very heavily armored. They enjoy running around and not staying in a line, uh, but they're very good as flankers and counterflankers. So that's your cav. Frederick recommends that the infantry should be used to hold outpost, which is to say hold key positions. So in, in like 40k, this is objectives. You're using your infantry to maneuver and hold actual objectives or actual key points on the battlefield that enable you to do something else with your strategy. Whereas your cav are always free to maneuver. You don't want to use them to hold objectives. That's not their purpose. Uh, I'm thinking, for instance, we've got two local guys here. We've already talked about TF a little bit, but he, he's, he's good in the line. It's not that he can't fight in the line, but he's so much better if he's allowed to just run in the field. Yeah, let him roam and you'll get more out of him. And if you tell Toto to do anything, include go hold an objective, he, he might do it if, if it's in Toto's agenda. But Totoville always serves Totoville, so Toto is always better served as Cav, in my opinion. Yeah, just leave... Uh, Pakshaw is another great example of just leave him to go do his thing, and if his thing is hold that objective, he can do it, but it's really much more like, let them go play, as opposed to the more dedicated uh, people like you or me a lot these days, or Sludge is a person we mentioned earlier when, before the episode, when we were talking about this concept mm -hmm. of someone that if you put them there, they can hold the place. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, and so this is a good thing to think about. And it's not like you, you might change roles throughout your career. When I first started doing Belagarth, I would have classified myself as Cav. I was very fleet of foot. I, did not enjoy being... I think I can hear an airplane going over That sounds like a jet is in this room. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear this in the episode. Oh, oh they can absolutely hear it. I'm watching it on the levels over here. That's interesting. <laughs> I hope the sound ending does that a little bit. I'm going to leave this in. This is interesting. There it goes. Dang. Okay, so Anyways, you might change over time. We you used might... to be more runners. I tend to play somewhere in the mid-range still. Sure, um, sure. Where I, I'm not a runner. I, I can't just keep up with a sprinter. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. But I will stay close enough to the objective that I can kind of go wherever is needed. Mid-range is my favorite place to play. And, and it's good to be balanced if you can. Like, if you've got a bum leg or, or something like that, obviously nobody's expecting you to be a sprinter. Um, but it's, it's good to be able to be flexible and, and fill out what your team needs, but also to recognize what you're going to fill. For instance, if I'm feeling particularly spry one day, I might be calf, but the next day I might have my full armor kit on and not be feeling as spry. And that day I might be infantry. So I just, it's good to recognize what role you're filling at that particular time and, and try to use, uh, yourself to your best advantage. Mm -hmm. So the last thing that we're going to talk about in the idea of pursuing the essential is, um, what to do when using detachments. Now, when he's talking about detachments, we're not speaking about the 40K specific thing of a spearhead detachment or a vanguard detachment. We're talking about splitting your army into smaller groups and using them to maneuver. He says, be careful with this mm -hmm. because the best way to hold an army together is, is together. Um, you want to try to hold your forces together because when you're attacking, you want your full force to bear. If you've got your force spread out over a large area, and you're trying to take this one objective, you don't know if you're going to have what you need to do that. You want to have more than what you need. I know the U.S. Army has a 10 to 1 ratio. We don't, we don't fight unless we have a 10 to 1 advantage. Yeah. Because you win. Yeah. Because you win. <laughs> That's the whole point. <laughs> uh, one thing that we've talked about a hundred times on this podcast, and we'll talk about another hundred times, is how terrible it is when you have gone two steps far out of position. Right. And 
it's too late to help. Yep. That's really what he's warning about, but on a much larger scale. Larger scale. But again, all of this, the micro and the macro, relate together. And so he's got a couple of quotes that relate to this uh, specifically. The first one was, they that would preserve everything, preserve nothing. And this relates, uh, actually, it's basically exactly what Sun Tzu said when he said, if you're going to try to defend everything, you're not going to end up defending anything because you're going to be weak everywhere. That's the idea here. If you spread your forces out super far, trying to give the same defense to every area, you're going to be weak in every area. And if your opponent bunches up and attacks you, they're going to be able to be numerically superior locally everywhere they go. And that's an issue. That's what, that was Frederick's whole strategy was to, was to maintain that superiority. And so you got to pick something. You got to figure out what is worth protecting and focus on that. The second, uh, the second quote is sacrifice the bagatelle and pursue the essential. So this is kind of the whole point of this section. A bagatelle, I had to look this up, is basically akin to like trash or that, that is w- which is useless or that which is worth less. The flotsam. <clears throat> the flotsam. The, uh, the slag, as it were. <clears throat> you want to sacrifice that and, and, and pursue the essential. Again, uh, you don't have to fight every picket. You don't have to fight every, every, every single fighter that's on your way. You don't have to engage every single unit that's on your way to the objective. You want to make sure that you are, are doing what you need to do to win. Yeah, if there's a bunch of fights that you don't need to do on the way there, that's just costing you stuff for the big fight that happens later. Right. Like, if they're going to come up behind you and you need to take care of them, then absolutely. But mm, there's no reason to throw a punch if it's not going to get you anything out of it. Also, don't punch people in either of the games we're talking about. But you know what I'm meaning. Uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so you want to make sure that you're not getting, you're not losing the the forest for the trees. and this is kind of what he's talking about here. And it brings us back to that same idea of hit the strongest point. If you see your enemy clustered someplace, take their strength away from them. And this is a little bit different than what Sun Tzu is suggesting, isn't it? Like Sun Tzu is saying, you know, avoid your opponent's strength, strike their weak point. Like it was a very, a very almost uh, kung fu way of approaching. Like you don't, you don't, if it's something, if you're where resistance they are strong, over here. Or where they're weak, you're strong, yada, yada, yada. Frederick suggests the exact opposite. Uh, he's, he says that you want to use your strength against their strength and just crush it early on. And part of this, I think, is just the battle style of the era. It's also, the, it's, it's also their personal styles. As yeah. Well. Frederick, from everything I'm reading, Frederick loved the grind. And the glory. Yeah. Frederick was one of the people that you would put him on a small field and they would just walk into each other for hours if he played Belagarth. And he would love that. He would. I think he would. I, I I would play Belagarth with Frederick. I I mean I, I I just yeah he'd be he'd be interesting. Frederick would beat me. I would beat Machiavelli. <laughs> Sun Tzu would probably whoop me. Yeah. In Belagarth, like assuming that you know they know the rules, yada yada yada. Player, but speculation is fun. It's I, fun. I I think I could beat up Machiavelli. So we've talked about using terrain to its full potential, and you got to do this through practice. And, and you use this practice to think about what you're going to do when you encounter an enemy on the move and what you're going to do when you encounter an enemy in position. you got to know what the roles of your various units are, what your infantry should be doing and what your cavalry should be doing, because then you can use them to their maximum potential. And when using detachments, we recommend being very careful and trying to hold your forces together to make sure that you can assemble the full force before attacking. This is very much in Frederick's style. And uh, 
Yeah, and I think these uh, a lot of these lessons, most of these lessons are going to come to bear in the battle that we're about to talk about, not only uh, in, in terms of the tactics, but also in terms of the wet, because the battle that we're talking about <laughs> is the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. knew this was going to happen that eventually i was going to tell the story of a battle or we would tell a story it's not just me that our friend parnable hmm. the great par <laughs> he is never going to let me live it down that i just called him the great par <laughs> the, the par get over yourself par the par knows really well because par is a historian oh yes he like is a accredited historian yep he, he's published no he's he's like pro he's He's, uh, he teaches classes, um, like people go and like pay to hear him, him talk about stuff. So like, yeah, he, and this is something like you say, he knows really well. And we not only picked a battle that he knows, we picked a battle that he named an event after. Because you may recognize when I was talking, when we just named this a battle of Teutoburg Forest, it sounds a lot like Teutoburg Wald, doesn't it? Or T-Wald. Oh my Lord. Which may or may not have been a, a, a battle that we, or an event that we discussed in a uh, transition episode type thing. So uh, this is actually the historic battle on which that was based, mm-hmm. at least as far as I can tell. Um, and, and what's interesting is I, I'm, I haven't asked Parr specifically, so this is speculation, but because the Battle of Teutoburg Forest took place in September and Teewald takes te- place in September, I have deduced that perhaps that was part of the reason that it was named such. I suspect so. All of this leading into... We're sorry if we get any of this wrong. Once again, we are not historians. We just like history. And we hope that you get to like history through this. I'm a little bit more of a historian, but, uh, but no, yeah, I've, I, I was, a, I was, I was paid to teach math, not, not so much, uh, history, even though I love it and love reading it. Yeah. If, if you want any of the behind the scenes on how this podcast works, uh, usually about five days before we record a message going, Hey, do you know what our battle is? And you're like, Oh, I, I'm not sure yet. I'm stuck on the civil war again. And yeah, then get stuck on the civil war. I, <laughs> I toss out a couple possible ideas, usually, hey, what about Rome? What about what the Persians did? And then you come out of nowhere with, like, a day later, with, like, here's the battle we're doing. Well, because I have to go through my books. That's the thing, is, like, I, <laughs> I, I know a lot of these battles, but I don't necessarily have them all memorized, but I, I could usually find them. And so I have to peel through, like, all of these books I have looking for the perfect battle for what we're talking about, or, or at least one that illustrates some of the principles that we're talking about. But yeah, so basically it's, what about the Civil War? What about not the Civil War? Oh, this one. And then Thumbs learns about the battle. And then we tell you about the battle. Mm-hmm. And, which is a very long intro to talk about and, and just to let you guys know, if I had really wanted to, every single battle we talk about could be from the Civil War. Because there were what? Uh, there were a lot of battles. Many much. In the Civil there were War. many much battles. We would not run out of battles from the <laughs> Civil War. Um, but... Uh, either to your benefit or to your not benefit, if you really like the Civil War, <laughs> we're talking about Teutonburg Forest today. So like I said, this took place uh, around September in 9 CE, uh, which is the current era. It's near Osnabrück County, 
at least they, they think it took place near Osnabrück County in Lower Saxony. Again, this this was, you know, over 2,000 years ago that these things were taking place. A lot of the exacts... 2011 years ago. A lot of the exacts get a little fuzzy, especially when borders shift and, you know, uh, natural uh, features may be removed, such as a forest. It can be hard to navigate. But in this particular case, we were dealing with the Roman Empire, speaking of Rome, mm-hmm. and the various Germanic tribes. Now, the Roman Empire was led by a man by the name of Publius... Quincentilis Varus, who we will call Varus for the rest of the episode, not to be confused with Varus from King of Thrones. Game of, Game of Thrones. King of Thrones. <laughs> King of Thrones. The, ver- the German tribes were, they were actually very diverse. To name a few, there were the, the Charshuti, the Marsi, the Chadi, the Bruschetti, and the Sicambri. Uh, and and th- these were just a few of the 50 Germanic tribes that were in this, this area. And they were led by Arminius. We mentioned this a little bit in the Julius Caesar episode. And also real quick, this is about 50 years after the death of Caesar. Right. So just compared to our previous last time we talked about, well, not the last time, but one of the last times we talked about Rome. Full-blown Roman Empire at this point. Yes. Uh, pretty early in that era, though, about second generation of Roman Empire. When we... Th- when you read about the Romans were fighting the German, the the Germanics, the Germans, the whatever we want. I just apparently do not know how to say Germans. <laughs> I am sorry, guys. It is getting late. We have German listeners, too. Thoughts. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry, everyone. Um, that sounds like two groups. It was never once two groups. No. It was the Romans. And honestly, even then, it wasn't just because there was the German allies that worked with Rome or there were the client people that were sending whatever. And then there was about 400 different Germanic Celtic tribes that might have gone into one conglomeration, but it was still fighting 15, 16 different tribes. Right. Right. And and so this, even, even this coming together was impressive. We're going to talk about how, how kind of a, um, a slog it was for Armenius to get these guys to work together. But these were groups that had, blood feuds. These were groups that hated one another, like vehemently. The, the difference was they hated Rome more. And there were, there were some reasons for this, but we're going to give you some backgrounds on our players here for a minute. First off, I've mentioned this guy, Arminius. Uh, we, we mentioned that he's German, right? But he's got this very, very Roman sounding name. There's a reason for this. He was sent to Rome as a tribute, as, host, as a hostage, as a kid. But he spent his youth uh, receiving a formal education in not just culture, but also military matters from the Romans. When we talk about hostage, when you think of hostage these days, you think of, uh, you know, gun to us, the head. Sort yeah, of thing. G- give us a million dollars or you'll never see your daughter again. Uh, but it wasn't that hostage of the time is much more similar to that character that you like in Game of Thrones, whose name I'm linking right now. Theon Greyjoy. If you if you remember Theon Greyjoy, who spent his time with the Starks in Game of Thrones, this is the kind of thing we're talking about as a hostage. You have a, a conquered people who are usually, the, the, the ruler is asked to send uh, a child, in this case, two sons, um, or, or in Theon's case, just the one, to go and live with the conquering persons to receive a you know an education to receive an upbringing it's it's totally not a uh if you uprise i'll murder you yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) and there were a couple different ways of doing this sometimes you would get thousands of troops the achaemenid persians would sometimes be like oh yes i'm i'm bringing a detachment of your troops but they're not really going to be involved in the battle but i've got a thousand of your people now like if you if you revolt say goodbye to that thousand troops that's super dead 
or you have something like this of one or two people. And honestly, those people tended to get a pretty good upbringing. They'd generally be raised by someone relatively high in Roman society or Greek. This was a really common thing for thousands of years. Oh, yeah. This is this is very, very, very common imperial practice. Yeah. And it's definitely what happened to uh, this guy. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he comes in and, and uh, he receives this, this formal education. But um, in a lot of cases... The people who do this become, uh, they become Roman, I guess. And a lot for, for, if we, when you come to a new culture and you're raised in this culture and surrounded by its symbols and its beliefs and its language, it's hard not to become immersed. It's hard not to become dominated by it, which was the whole purpose of this practice by the Romans. And Verus really thought that it, this had happened to Arminius up well, until this the is end. something the Romans are so good at. Oh, they, they are too. Romans could Romanize like nobody's business. Well, and part of it was because you'd be coming from an area like these Germanic tribes, which, which, uh, I mean, let's face it, they didn't live exceptionally well. And you go to some place like Rome, where there's internal plumbing. Yeah. Where, where, where you've got like relatively clean streets, where you've got these massive buildings constructed of marble and granite. Like, yeah, it's even if blow somebody's mind. Even the Celts that had a good life, it was never a super easy life. And sure. in Rome, there's wine and free bread. And I mean, even that alone is just incredible to think about. I don't have wine and free bread every day. No. That'd be nice. <laughs> I could go for some wine and free bread right about I now. I would super be Romanized, and I'm not even that big fan of that big of a fan of the Romans. I already speak Latin. Yeah, uh, you're set. We're good. Um, so, so that was the ex- expectation here, especially by somebody like Verus, because Verus came from a noble family. In fact, he was related to the imperial family, so he's he's kind of a, a bigwig in Roman society, and he he lived up to his name. He was known for his ruthlessness, and this had earned him a reputation in Rome. Uh, he was lauded as a hero because his methods were extremely effective. He would often crucify entire armies that stood against him. And like, so the terror factor that he excluded was massive. And so of course the, the, the tribes that he was supposed to rule over did not necessarily want to cross him because he was well known for being very vicious. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he had come from, he obviously very Roman, very, very into what Roman life represented. And Arminius became a part of his council, became a trusted advisor uh, to this guy and was able to go with him on campaigns and was able to be with him in the field while in the background organizing this this confederation of these tribes, which is really quite incredible because as we've said, these tribes hated one another. Like they, for instance, they hated the tribe that Arminius came from because their fa- his father had capitulated to the Roman tribute, which was illegal. Which was illegal. That was straight up. You were not allowed to ally with Rome by Death this sentence. Point. Yeah, bad bad news. And so, like, he was coming from a necessarily bad political position. So the fact that he was able to do this is really quite incredible. Like, oh yeah, gotta tip your hat to him. And again, he's doing all of this while being an advisor for the Roman general for lack of a better term yeah uh and when you think about this this is easier back then but also way more difficult because on one hand it's not like he's calling up you know the head of germany he's not going hey angela let's uh let's go against my boss here and and there's no one tapping that phone line right right but on the other hand he's got to send a messenger that it might take three weeks just to get to them. Sure. And then three weeks to get back. And then you have to write out your next letter and back and forth like this. And you just have to pray that the tribe three days away from them don't start a war in that meantime. Right. While you're trying to guide all these people together and you're having to have all of this messengers back and forth while the big nasty general guy is literally hanging out with you. Right. Uh, thinks you're a, a subjugated vassal. Thinks you're a bud. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to admire this guy's, uh, Huevos yeah, you, you know, these. having dinner together and like the messenger comes in. Oh, I brought this. Like, what's up? Oh, totally not that these people are going to attack you. Okay, cool. Yep. Nope. Uh, grandma says hi. I, yeah, uh, I just got a tweet about grandma. Don't worry about it. Um, and so he's, he's, he's this trusted advisor and he's able to observe what's going on in the Roman Legion and, and, and be a part of the inner workings. And at the, around this time, there's an uprising in the Balkans over typical things, high taxes, uh, high tribute, um, not enough money coming back to them, starvation, like all that sort of thing has provoked this very, very large uprising in the Balkans. And eight of the 11 legions that were in this area of Germany were moved to deal with this rebellion. This is something like a quarter to half the number of legions that Rome had at the time. Right. This is a huge number of, uh, of troops that are moving out of the area. And so no better time than then. You don't want to attack an army when it's at its full strength. And so Armenia sees that it's, it's kind of his time to strike. And so locally, he reports that there is a local uprising. And now he's fabricated these reports. Mm -hmm. But of course, Varys moves to deal with it because he can't uh, stomach something like this happening on his watch. And he makes several mistakes here because he's trusting in the information that Arminius gives him. For instance, he was warned not to do that too. He was too by Arminius's father-in-law. Who, who really hated Armenians. not like him at all, apparently, because he went to Varus and was like, you should not trust this man. He's got a confederation with these generals going, or with these uh, tribal leaders going on. You should arrest him and arrest his compatriots. And he's like, you're just mad that he married your daughter. You're you just, just need to accept your son-in-law. Stop being jelly. Yeah, it wasn't good. Apparently this guy's a valley girl in the version <laughs> of the world, and it's... Probably not far off. <laughs> he's a patrician. He's a patrician, okay? It did not go well for him. Um, so yeah, his, his forces aren't marching in formation because they don't, they don't anticipate anything going on. There's a, there's a rebellion happening over there. And so they're in Arminius leads them into this area that is ripe for an ambush. They're not marching in formation. They're interspersed with the camp followers. So you've got like regular people like, uh, you know, cooks and blacksmiths and that sort of thing who are marching with the soldiers, breaking up the formations even further. These so soldiers on top of it are inexperienced. All the most experienced dudes went east to deal with the issue in the Balkans. Well, and then on top of that, you do have other troops, but they're not Roman legions as well. So you might not even speak to the language of the people next to you because they might be, again, other Germanic tribes or, I don't know, Judeans. That were even Sicilian. Yeah, Sicilian, yeah. yeah. Yeah, all from all over the place. I mean, the Roman auxiliaries came from all over. So there was that issue too. And then on top of all of it, we've, we've talked about this before as being a huge issue, but there was no recon sent forward. No scouts, no pickets, none of that sort of thing in the front. It was just, they were marching blind through the forest to a place where they said that it was going to be, um... I don't care how big and set up your army is. Scouts. This is hubris. It's got to be hubris. And, and again, you got to remember that Varus trusted Arminius implicitly. He thought that he was a loyal, subjugated vassal of Rome. And what had actually had happened is that Arminius was practicing this knowledge of the enemy to the nth degree. Because how better to know one's enemy than to have studied with one's enemy, grown up around one's enemy, you know, you know, gone to school, graduated with, served in the army with, ser like served directly under the general of the enemy. Yeah, you're like, like three tenths over from him. Yeah. Like, and that's, that's as good as you're going to get to knowing the enemy. Yeah. When we're talking about the minutia of knowledge that was available to Arminius when he was making these plans, it was, it was absolutely incredible. And he used it, he used every single bit of it. Uh, for instance, they couldn't necessarily plan this portion of it. But I don't, those of you who are from Germany who have visited the area will know that it is a area near a oceanic 
and it gets very wet from time to time. And September is one of those times when it's typically fairly wet in that area mm-hmm. of the world. Um, now this wetness played a huge role in this battle. So what happened is this loose formation is marching through the forest and then suddenly they're just beset in, in, in these strategic points by locally superior numbers. Again, you're not dealing with a force that is as well equipped as the Romans or as well trained or as, uh, usually as organized. But in this particular case, they're catching them out of formation. I was reading about the archaeology of this, and I thought this was kind of interesting. They have trouble figuring out what the German, the, the Germanic, the Germanic, apparently that's my word to learn today, <laughs> what the Germanic forces were doing, um, because either they were less equipped, you know, a leather armor that didn't stay, or a lot of them were using knockoff Roman armor or old Roman armor that they stole and grat or gathered for whatever way. Sure. So it's kind of hard to be like, well, we don't know if this guy was Germanic or Roman because in a lot of cases they were using knockoff Roman stuff. So yeah, like, like he's saying, it's really hard to tell how, how badly the losses went. Uh, so, but about on the German sides, we know uh, the German side, we know that there was minimal losses. Like uh, they were negligible compared to the nearly complete wipe that occurred to the Roman forces. Again, this, this, the, uh, the crushing, this ambush that occurred. And then like the several day pursuit that occurred afterwards as the Romans bled their strength away, uh, against this, this, this force that seemed to know every single one of their moves seemed to be able to predict every single one of, of their patterns because they could. Because they could, and it was beautiful. And, and, and we were talking about wet. That seems to have been the theme for this mm-hmm. entire podcast. And one of the things we've been telling you to prepare against, it was one of the reasons the Romans lost here. Because their shield and armor setup, when it gets logged with water... Gets real heavy. Gets real heavy. Well, and their, uh, the, the sinew that they were using for archery doesn't work when it gets wet. It gets like super slack. loose and stretchy, and yep. you can't really fire a stretchy bow. Um, just to really reinforce how badly this went for the Romans, they called it the Battle of Teutoburg Wald or Schlacht im Teutoburg. I'm not even going to try. I'm sorry, Germans. <laughs> they also referred to it as the Varian disaster. Like yeah. that was their main name for this, the Varian disaster. And, and the emperor at the time was quoted, he was sitting there banging his head against the stone walls of his palace saying, uh, Varus, give me my legions back. It's a very famous Roman emperor quote. Was that? Tiberius at this point? Gosh, I, I looked it up right before we came out here, but it's not in my notes, therefore it's not. It's either head. Tiberius or the guy right before Tiberius. Right. Either way, like that is man, that is so over the top Roman, first of yeah. all. And then it's just God, it went badly for them. I, most of the officers ended up falling on their own swords, which is very typical for Romans of the time. If they're going to be facing defeat, they would rather commit suicide than be boiled alive, which is what happened to the survivors in this particular case if they were captured. Uh uh, one of the Roman or, or Germanic traditions was to, uh, yeah, boil your, the, uh, the, uh, captured people alive. The Germanic people got two of the Roman eagles, like the standard of the legion, which is, uh, they might've got deal. three. They might've gotten all three. I know the Romans went in and got two of them back later. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how big this was. Right, right. And that was a thing for ever. I mean, even as far as the Napoleonic Wars, if you could get the standard that is everything has gone terribly wrong and like all board games are somewhat based off of that especially like you look at stratego and that sort of thing it's all about getting the flag we seem to especially in western culture we have this fascination with capturing the flag but the reason for that is is because you know the standard is the representation of the power of that force it is a huge blow to morale yeah yeah it really is 
So what did Arminius do here? I mean, he used basically everything we talked about. For one thing, it was wet, and he used that to his advantage because he knew that the Roman gear was not going to work as well when it was wet. Um, he knew the country. He knew the place. He had, he had chosen the camps. He examined the roads. He, he was the locals, and he spoke to the other locals. Everything was good there. He knew what plans the enemy was going to make, not only because he was intricately involved in the making of those plans, but because he had trained with his enemy and was inside the mind of his enemy, which is incredibly important. And therefore, he then pursued the essential, using his, the terrain to its full potential and striking at the exact right time. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a clean victory, at least for the Germanic tribes. Yeah, this is, there's not a whole lot to add on here. It's why I've mostly been talking about like the before and the after and all that stuff, because the battle itself is not the interesting part of Battle of Teutoburg Wald. It wasn't much of a battle. It was more of a, oh gosh, we're being beset on all sides. Oh gosh, we can't form up. Oh gosh, we're all dying. You know, I've noticed when Romans lose, they lose really Badly. Their whole system depends on everything working together in a in a machine. If but the when machine they when they down, win, it goes wonderful. Oh yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. like clockwork. Ah, uh, so yeah, th- I I hope that you guys have enjoyed our our episode on the Kudel today. One thing that is worth talking about on this is th- what happens after the battle. Oh sure, yeah. Rome never really tries to take over German lands again. No, this kind of this kind of makes them be like it's not worth it. We don't want to. They, I mean, they go in, they do some punitive expeditions, they kind of settle at the the river. That's what the Rhine. Yeah, uh, and there's apparently some debate on this. Of the Rhine was a just kind of natural stopping point for sure. Rome because the other rivers that you could use as natural borders would have taken a lot more work to get supplies there. The Rhine, you could just kind of sail right down it. Very convenient. But it is always telling when a empire stops trying to conquer a place and starts setting up client kings instead. Right. They would be like, oh, God, you're exhausting trying to take over these German tribes. But we can punch you a couple of times and then we can install this guy who, even if he doesn't like us, isn't willing to mess with us. Right, right. He's got, we got some, some sort of deal worked out. Yeah. You'll you'll pay us some tribute. You'll stop, you know, whatever. And you keep your independence, but you also don't. Right. Right. And so that, like you say, that's a big deal, especially someplace like Rome, which is so uh, prone to going in and just setting their flags up places for them to stop short and say, you know what? We're going to change tactics. Again, this, this very disaster was... A huge, a huge blow to the And again, Roman. this is Rome at the top of its game. I don't know if Rome ever got significantly better than this era in history. They just conquered most of the known world, or what for them was the known world. Right. And they were pulling in. They had so much money. They had just become the empire, so they had just stopped kind of... I mean, it's Rome. They're still fighting within themselves, but there's less infighting going on sure. and they were able to focus all of that outwards yep on, on their expansion and, and conquest campaigns and so yeah this was a huge deal especially someplace like the germanic tribes who they believed were beneath them you know the um, barbarians of the north which we are and you canadians are to <laughs> us gosh darn barbarians you dang it maple um so yeah, we hope you've enjoyed this this episode today. Um, we've definitely enjoyed putting it on. We're we're going to be back in two more weeks uh, to talk about talents, 
ruses and stratagems, which is going to be fun. But in the meantime, you can catch our sister, sister shows at the Earverb Network. Uh, yeah, you can listen to me talk about nerdy things on uh, General Nerdery. For example, uh, talking about Doctor Who last week, talked about Batman. Just anything that kind of fits in the category of nerd will find an excuse. Eventually, I'm going to get you on there to talk about Warhammer 40k. Once it's safe to assemble. Yeah, because yeah. we are outside my wheelhouse on that one. <laughs> if you have learned anything from this podcast, it's probably that. Uh, or you can go listen to Fried Squirps. There are other podcasts on the way coming once, you know, global pandemic is done. I know I've mentioned that a lot, but it's kind of a thing. Uh, you can find all of that, those sites at, or all of those podcasts at earverm.com, which is E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. And if uh, two week, once, uh, once every two weeks isn't enough uh, Art of Wargaming for you, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at that handle, Art of Wargaming, or on Facebook, on Instagram, it's Art of Wargaming Podcast. Um, if you've got questions, comments, concerns, if you want to participate in the player profiles or you want to volunteer one of your friends for the player profiles, which we're totally okay with, mm-hmm. um, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. There's also our website itself, which is TAO Wargaming, Tau Wargaming.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that's all the plugs. I think that's most of the plugs. All right. Well, again, thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you guys are keeping safe and, uh, and keeping yourselves busy. And uh, this has been Yag Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off.